Welcome to episode eight of your MedMal podcast, Discovering the Needle. Nurse consultants help you discover what you didn't know that you didn't know about how to win your medical malpractice case. In this podcast, we look at anonymized true examples of how a behind the scenes, non-testifying nurse consultant was able to quickly locate, isolate, and articulate the core issues in common and not so common medical malpractice scenarios using his or her nursing expertise to save the firm upfront costs resulting in higher profits and higher compensation to your deserving client. If you're new to our podcast, welcome. You can learn more about how behind the scenes legal nurse consulting can improve your firm's win rates and profitability by following us on LinkedIn or visiting our website at www.nplegalconsultants.com. By following our weekly podcast, you can use your commute to sharpen your own standard of care issue spotting and causation narrative skills. Grow your virtual Rolodex of top nurse consultants of all specialties and discover the MedMal plaintiff attorney's secret weapon for slaying the medical corporate giant. It's time to discover the nurse consultant advantage. Let's get started. Welcome everybody to our show today. Today, our guest is Lisa Dabrowska. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, thank you so much for having me on today. Absolutely. I'd love to have you tell us a little bit about your clinical background first and how you became a legal nurse. Sure. I'm a bachelor's prepared registered nurse. I've been working in med surge since I graduated from URI in 2004. Around 2015, I started really getting interested in the field of legal nurse consulting. So I did Duke University online and I graduated with my certificate of legal nurse consulting in 2016. And I've been doing behind the scenes work since then. I still work on the floor. I feel like that's a huge asset to my practice to be able to be continuing working with patients, keeping my skills up, as well as doing chart review. Lisa can be reached on LinkedIn at Lisa Debraska, RNLNC. That's Lisa D apostrophe A B R O S C A, RNLNC. She can also be reached by email at lisa.legalnurse at yahoo.com. That's awesome that you were able to get a certificate from Duke University. What does that entail? Thank you. It was pretty intense, actually. It was a lot like taking any other university class. It was very comprehensive from the history of legal nurse consulting to why we do what we do, how we do what we do and some real life examples. Yeah, there's a wide variety of different programs out there when it comes to preparation as a legal nurse consultant. It's not a regulated industry. There's the American Association of Legal Nurse Consultants or AALNC, which is an optional association that you can join. As those certifications go, a university certificate would be among the most reputable. So that's really commendable. Thank you. In nursing school, when I went, we didn't have any education about legal things, about documentation, about how does the lawsuit process work. New grads, they don't have a lot of education about that either. So 2016, I graduated with my certificate of legal nurse consulting. I put together a comprehensive lecture that would go over the high points of what legal nurse consulting entails. I talk about the lawsuit process in general. I talk about what to expect if you're named in a suit. And then I talk about when you're documenting, what are the things that you need to think about? Who is your audience when you're documenting? And then we also talk a little bit about the ins and outs of nursing insurance. 
And that sounds like that would be a huge asset. I can think of a lot of different groups that would benefit from a course like that, like defense attorneys or insurance companies might want nurses who are in the facilities that they represent to have this kind of course to make sure that they are being as defensive as possible. But I can also see individual nurses just wanting to cover themselves and come to a course like that. So that's really awesome that you offer that. What is your platform that you use for that? Or how do you connect people with that? Is it just live training right now? I can do live training. I feel like Zoom is the best platform at this point, but I am willing to come to you if you'd like. Great. Well, I think that is a great service, especially as geared towards registered nurses. Registered nurses just document differently than physicians and providers. And it's nice to know that it's sort of niched in that area. A lot of our listeners are legal nurse consultants. And I think that would also benefit them from both the angle of being a legal nurse consultant and reviewing other people's documentation and also in being defensive in their own clinical practice. And speaking of nursing documentation, I think that's a great segue into the case that you brought today because a lot of cases rely heavily on nursing documentation. I want to have you go ahead and give us the background on this case. What happened? Sure. This is a very interesting case. It's actually one of the first cases that I worked on and it kind of made me keep my mind open and to make sure that I would review everything before I made any kind of a judgment call. So the background of the case is there was a young man. He was a known IV drug user and he had developed a skin infection due to unsterile techniques of, of injecting his heroin. So he ended up going to the hospital for some antibiotics. So he stayed in the hospital for approximately a week, and then he was medically cleared for discharge with the exception that he needed long-term antibiotics for approximately a month more. So people in this case are generally sent home and maybe visiting nurses' services, or perhaps a loved one can do the antibiotics. But because this gentleman has a history of IV drug use, in this instance, it would be irresponsible of the hospital for the patient to be sent home with an IV so the hospital sends this patient to a skilled nursing facility for long-term care. He went to a skilled nursing facility with a central line. And a central line is an IV. It goes in your upper arm and it threads through the veins of your arm and it ends right in the top of your heart. So this is a direct access to your bloodstream. So kind of solves the problem of needing access to your IVs for a long period of time because it's more permanent than those little IVs that you get in your hand or your wrist or the crook of your elbow kind exactly. of helps to reduce the frequency because those need to be changed out very frequently. But if you have a long-term therapy like chemotherapy or antibiotic therapy, then central lines or pick lines make a lot of sense. So 30 days after admission to the skilled nursing facility, the patient was rushed to the hospital in septic shock, and unfortunately, he passed away. The patient's estate contacted the attorney and asked to have a chart review done and see if there was a case. Applied his last admission to the hospital, there was no obvious evidence of infection. There was no urinary infection. There was no open wounds. There was no pneumonia. There was literally nothing. There was no avenue of infection. So the obvious source of infection would be that pick line. It's because there's certain steps that we can do as nurses in both the hospital and the SNF to prevent infection. And so the thought sounds like was that, that those steps had been missed somewhere that by virtue of the fact that this infection existed and that the only real source into his body was this pick line. Yeah, it can be pretty well assumed that there was something going on with the pick line. Maybe there was improper care or less than perfectly up to par standards of care with the care of that pick line. The care of a pick line or any central line for that matter 
is very different than a care of a peripheral IV, the short-term ones that we spoke about earlier. Central Lyme needs to be taken care of much more carefully because it is such a high infection risk. But that has nothing to do with the doctor whatsoever. That has everything to do with nursing care. With a PIC line, it has to be cleaned differently and the little hub or the clave that connects from the actual PIC itself to the IV line, that has to be changed more frequently and there has to be a certain sterile technique used when that is changed. And of course, dressing changes would need to be done either once a week or every several days, depending on the policy of the institution. But dressing changes are definitely a thing that needs to be documented, needs to be done in a sterile manner, as opposed to a peripheral IV where the dressing can basically stay in place until the IV needs to be replaced. And that would all need to be documented by nursing staff. Yeah. So in a peripheral IV, you can just wear regular gloves and handle that. But with a central line, anytime you're taking that dressing off, you're going to be doing the whole sterile gloving techniques and everything to make sure that you're not introducing any bacteria into that insertion site. If the patient is able to follow instructions, you would have the patient wear a mask and have him or her turn his face away, you know, coughing. You have to treat it very differently than you would a peripheral IV. Yeah. And even the cleansing solution, depending on the policy, that cleansing solution is a little stronger than alcohol wipe. Yes. When you're doing the dressing change, it would be definitely stronger than the average alcohol wipe. When you're actually doing that dressing change, you would have to use a different chemical. As registered nurses, we're all aware of that process, which might vary slightly by hospital policy, but there's steps involved that are going to be across the board pretty standard. And there's reasons for every one of those steps that most of them are to prevent infection or to prevent dislodgement. Those are the two major complications of having this central line in there. But from a legal nurse consulting perspective, nurses don't document necessarily that they did each and every one of those steps. They'll just say something like dressing changed, right? Sometimes they'll say dressing changed using sterile technique, but there's no way to verify that each and every step of that technique was actually done. That would be burdensome to describe exactly how they removed the old dressing and then to describe how they did the concentric circles and all of these different sort of steps involved. It would be really burdensome to to document that way. It sure would be. It'd be very unrealistic to document that way. So when you talk about documentation standards and defensive documentation, like where does that, where do we draw that line as far as how to know when we're just creating so much burden on documentation that we're actually taking away from the time that should be spent. Exactly. We call that stolen care because you're so busy documenting what you're doing that you're actually spending more time with the computer or with the chart than you are with the patient. So it is hard to draw that line. And for a nurse to say that the dressing was done in a sterile technique, one would imagine that would be sufficient. Yeah. When you have a case like this, where again, there's no other obvious source of introduction for a systemic infection. He has a clear invasive device in his body that would be an easy source of entry. And then you have an infection. I mean, to me, it's like you almost can go down that argument of by virtue of the fact that this outcome exists, we can assume that something was amiss in these preventative measures. That seems like it would make sense. And it makes sense why an attorney would make that assumption. For sure. And just because a nurse documents that something was done for a sterile technique, this nurse might have learned it all wrong. And whether the nurses learned it wrong, the patient is still being harmed. One approach that an attorney could take is to ask the nurse to describe her technique in deposition and that her testimony about how she normally would 
do that would be evidence as to what was done. And then they could repeat that questioning on the stand and try and see whether there's consistency there as, as far as what she's describing, whether it aligns with hospital policy. And then one step further, whether that hospital policy is actually in alignment with nationally recognized standards of care. And then you've got the complication that there's multiple nurses involved, right? You've got shift changes and you've got not just one nurse that's changing this, but it could have been introduced at any time. So that can be really challenging. But that being said, ultimately with nursing, and this is what speaks to the advantages of having a nurse review the record, if a standard of care violation in nursing care and nursing interventions can be identified, then it takes that level of accountability up the ladder to the hospital itself, because these nurses are hospital employees. And so taking a really solid look at nursing documentation is critical for that attorney being able to identify each and every defendant and also to weigh out the level of accountability on each defendant, including the hospital. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, in this case, a skilled nursing facility, but the concept still applies. Absolutely. So I looked at the chart as a whole, and of course I started with the nursing notes and I was looking to see the PIC itself, dressing care, had it been done in a timely fashion? Was it documented every time it was changed? Every time they changed a claim, was that documented properly? And it was. So I looked a little deeper into the record and I was focusing on the patient's vital signs. I was really looking to get a big picture to see what was going on. When we come to a conclusion and we assume things, we could be wrong. So I figured I would dig into the records and see what it was that I could find because Vital signs of patient behavior is very telling. I found several instances where his heart rate was very elevated. Then I looked a little more into the narrative notes. The narrative note did indicate that the patient had an elevated heart rate, but it also indicated that the patient was very agitated. He had a runny nose. He did not want to come out of his room for dinner, and he was complaining of nausea. Okay, so maybe he had a cold. Maybe he was running a fever. Some just doesn't add up here. So there was another instance in which this patient had a heart rate of 120, 60 to 90 being normal, and he had the sweats, he was agitated. And what was very telling to me, and I'm going to give credit where credit is due, if this nurse had not documented this, we would be here today, documented that his pupils were dilated and fixed. So I said to myself, this kind of sounds like withdrawal symptoms from opioids. Maybe the skilled nursing facility were giving him some kind of pain medication. So I looked in his medication administration record, and he wasn't even getting Tylenol, let alone any kind of narcotic. So it started to raise a red flag in my head. This nursing facility allowed day passes, and this patient had gone out twice. And when he came back from on his day pass, all of these things were documented in his note about eight hours to 24 hours later. Just like clockwork, he was showing signs of withdrawing from opioids. So looking into it again, uh, the last time that he displayed these behaviors, that lined up exactly with his day pass. And then approximately four days later, maybe five days later, is when he went into septic shock and was brought to the hospital. When the blood cultures came back post-mortem, they grew group A strep, which is the most common cause of bacteremia or septic shock in IV drug users. So looking at that clinical picture, it tells me that the nurses weren't the ones who were using unsterile technique to access the pick. And that coupled with the patient's history, it wasn't the first time that he had come to the hospital 
with abscesses and infections for injecting himself in an unsterile manner. From a logistical standpoint, from a plaintiff's point of view, it sounds like a nightmare to try and defend that when you start talking to plaintiff's contributory factors. I'm curious about these day passes. I would assume those are based off of doctor's orders that are specific to, to that patient, right? Yes and no. Let me preface this by saying I've never worked in a skilled nursing facility. We don't do day passes at the hospital I work at, so I'm not really sure that I can speak articulately to it. My understanding is that in this particular facility, it's more of a policy with a nursing home as opposed to something the doctor would write. And so I kind of went round and round in my head. The hospital didn't send him home with this IV access due to the fact that he could go and put heroin right in there. Would it be irresponsible for the long-term facility to do the same? I wrestled with that back and forth. At the end of the day, the policy of the nursing home was that patients could leave once a week. I would want to have additional information on what are those policies and are there exceptions? Is it that people get day passes by default and that there are exceptions made with doctor's orders to not have day passes? Or is it that those day passes are ordered by the physician? It seems like there there would be either one or the other, like there'd be a default and then there would be like, oh, but a doctor's order could override that. And so I guess that would be the only sort of potential liability left in that is should that physician have ordered no day pass if that was an option or should the nurses have been notifying the doctor that the patient was presenting in this way? Maybe they just did not have any suspicion. Nurses don't draw conclusions in their documentation. They typically just document their observations, which paints a picture for the providers to come in and make a conclusion. In that documentation, did you get a sense that those nurses knew what was going on? at the time or only retroactively in your review? In the first instance, I would say no, just because he was having these random symptoms and he could have caught a cold, he could have had food poisoning, he could have just, for whatever reason, been not feeling himself. But the second instance, I feel like maybe the nurse was picking up on things and maybe she was like, okay, it was happened once before and now it's happened again. So I'm going to be really careful and document every single thing that I see this patient doing. That's a little different than his norm. You wonder, was that passed on from nurse to nurse so that it's not just, you know, Susie QRN that is observing this and making her notes, but not passing on her her sort of hypothesis to the subsequent shifts. You wonder about whether she's passing on her observations to the physician who could then say, oh, if that's the case, let's stop his day passes. There's different things. But at the end of the day, there's definitely an angle that the defense attorney can come in and take as insofar as patient contributing factors. One that I'm having is that in looking at this patient's condition, his addiction as a medical condition, that was something that they should have been observing for. I mean, there's arguments on both sides of that. And the end of the day, like you said, it, it has to be a slam dunk for plaintiff cases, I feel like, because Plaintiff cases are an uphill battle. A lot of cases will not even make it through the screening process, not even make it to the hands of a legal nurse consultant because those attorneys who've done med mal for years, they know enough to know, you know, which cases are just not worth pursuing. If the cases are wavering, it can be an uphill battle to try and land it solidly in the plaintiff's field. For sure. And you're spot on by saying a defense attorney could poke some holes in there. I don't think it was something that my attorney wanted to go through. I don't think it's something that the family members wanted to go through. We talk a lot about the cost of a trial, but a lot of times we don't talk about the emotional cost of it. And when a loved one dies, you're grieving. But now we file this lawsuit and now a year and a half later, we're in trial. And now we're reliving the whole thing again. And I don't think that people realize the impact that makes it needs to be a slam dunk or you're just going to put yourself in emotional and in, in financial debt 
to go through that process. Yeah. And there's no guarantee of any particular outcome on the other end of it. And so at the end of the day, you could have this wake of just absolute emotional destruction and no, no real compensation. If the jury decides to side with the fact that there's character flaws in this individual, the plaintiff attorney can take the approach and paint this more as a disease than something that those nurses and providers should have been managing. But the defense attorney will paint it more as a character flaw. And it really comes down to the jury and their bias, how they already see addiction. If that jury sees addiction as a character flaw and not a disease, they're going to lean towards that defense verdict. Exactly. Sometimes it doesn't even matter the truth of a thing. Do you know what I mean? It matters what 12 people in a room with several hours of deliberation will. Exactly. I feel like it highlights and really illustrates the importance of looking through nursing documentation and how as a nurse, you can come in and find things that a doctor wouldn't have seen if they had reviewed this particular case. Absolutely. In my current practice now in the hospital, doctors don't always look at the nurses now. So if a doctor was looking at this, he or she would have glossed right over those two little instances that really were very telling. A nurse is going to look at things just very differently than a doctor looks at things. A lot of what the nurses were observing, if they don't make it to the point where the doctor is called, then they don't make it to the point of landing in the doctor's progress notes or resulting in some kind of change in the doctor's orders. So if you're only reviewing those high-level things, you're going to miss some of the minutiae that can make or break the case. Exactly. That's a fantastic story. I appreciate you coming on and sharing with us about what you've learned as a legal nurse consultant and how you were able to help with this case. Thank you so much for having me on. It was great to talk with you. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Discovering the Needle. Nurse consultants help you discover what you didn't know that you didn't know about how to win your medical malpractice case. This podcast is a production of Discovery NP Legal Consultants. Discovery is the largest unified growing force of specialty nurse practitioners offering consulting services to medical malpractice attorneys who take cases for the plaintiff. To request a consultation or to be featured as a legal nurse consultant on our podcast, you may reach us on our website at www.nplegalconsultants.com or by calling 208-779-1990. That's 208-779-1990.